All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs. Today we're going to be talking about John chapter 6, verse 44. And I want to take my time as we go through this. We're going to read what some of the Calvinist commentaries say about this, what some non-Calvinist commentaries say about this, and hopefully come to a little bit of a conclusion on what John chapter 6, verse 44 is talking about, on who is able to come to Jesus, and how that relates to your personal walk and evangelism with the Lord. So, um, bear with me as we go through this. I'm going to be jumping around through different commentaries and books. So, I want to take my time with this as we go through it, so that you can get as much information as we can in, in a short amount of time that it'll be beneficial to you as a viewer. Uh, but let's see where to start here. I think the best place to start would just be to read it. I'm going to share my screen, and you should be able to see what it is that I am looking at, and we'll just jump into it. So I think a good place to start would probably be, well, let me jump over here to this. I think the best place to start is going to be verse 37, 35. All right. So, Jesus said unto them, I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I, am came, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again in the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Um, so verse 44 is going to be the focus of our conversation today. If you are familiar with or engage in these types of conversations, there are a ton of different ways that people interpret these things. And I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the way that people interpret this this particular passage and verse 38 as well, um, has a lot to do with theological assumptions, theological preconceptions. Um, and these things are read back into the text, whether knowingly or unknowingly. So I want to look at the text. I want to look at the comment, some commentaries and we'll look at the grammar and the syntax and see if this verse is saying uh, what some people believe that it is saying. So, I'll read it again. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Um, you'll also find as you come through John chapter 6, that if you're ever going to engage with uh, Catholics or Greek Orthodox or Lutherans, 
any number of people who believe that uh, there are additional graces through the elements, through the sacraments, those sorts of things that this passage is speaking about eternal life being given to those who come to uh, Christ through those sacraments. That would be uh, the bread and the wine, um, those sorts of things, the, the church. Um, there's, there's any number of different avenues, depending on what denomination you're talking about, that people believe that these graces are a grace that God has given us in order to grasp eternal life through Jesus. And they don't see it as a work. They don't see it as something that's meritorious, but a grace that's been given to them to be able to do this as a requirement for eternal life. But the focus of our conversation today is going to simply be who is able to come to Jesus. And with that sort of language, you're going to see other things that are brought into this, like election, predestination, uh, and hopefully in the future, we'll be able to do future videos on those topics. Um, Calvinism is something that almost persuaded me. Uh, years ago, I did a, a debate with a Calvinist, and I, and I thought that I knew more about Calvinism than I did. Uh, so I learned a lot in that debate about what Calvinists really do believe. And I've learned that I have a lot to learn about what uh, Calvinists do believe about certain things, and the more that I've dived into uh, this topic, and specifically Calvinism, the more I'm convinced that Calvinism is in error, it needs to be corrected, and uh, this is one way that I'm able to do it. Another way is to do debates. I, I do debates. You can check them out on my website. I've done a few on Standing for Truth and other interviews that um, represent the free grace position. I think the free grace position most accurately represents um, soteriology, the way a person is saved. And particularly John 6, 44, some people will take this as salvific. So coming to Christ is a, a reference to somebody who's not saved, that when you come to Christ, you are now saved, and you have these eternal promises of never being cast out, and those sorts of things. Um, not to dive into uh, a side note right from the start, but there's different ways of looking at, at these sorts of, of, of things and the implications that they have as it relates to the person who is being cast out, as it relates to who is being addressed. Is it a Christian? Is it somebody who is already a believer? Is it somebody who's not a believer? Um. But let's look at John 6, 44, and see what some of the commentaries are saying about this. So uh, let's start with a, I, I would say, a non-Calvinist um, commentary. This is uh, Lang. He says, no man can come to me. You can see it in verse 44 over here. Uh, this is where I'm looking over in this bottom right-hand corner where it looks kind of purple or blue. Lang says, uh, here, reach me in particular, reach an understanding of my nature, apprehend the spirit and flesh, deity and humanity, the son of God in the Nazarene, except the father draw him. And you have the Greek word draw here, uh, elkuin, it denotes all sorts of drawing. This is what Lang is saying. 
It's not limited to a specific one type of drawing here. He says that this drawing uh, can be from violence to persuasion or even invitation. But persons can be drawn only according to the laws of personal life. Hence, this is not to be taken in a high predestinarian sense. That is, Calvin it is false and impious to say, non nisi valentis trahi. You've got some Latin that's uh, referencing the kind of violent nature of this drawing. Um, and then Beza does the same thing. Eredius does the same thing. And he goes on and says, Yet on the other hand, the force of the added clause um, denoting a figurative vital constraint subduing by the bias of want or desire of hope of mind must not be abated. The drawing of the Father is the point at which election and foreordination become calling represented as entirely the work of the Father. Meyer, he's quoting, says, The Elkuen is the mode of the didonai, uh, didonai, an internal pressing and leading to Christ by the operation of divine grace. So, <clears throat> kind of what you've got here, Lang is basically saying, this drawing, it doesn't have to be the violent nature of uh, drawing a sword, throwing a net into the, uh, into the ocean and pulling the fish out, that sort of drawing. Um, he's making the argument that it's done by the operation of divine grace, and he quotes Jeremiah 30, verse 3, which says, For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Um, he goes on and, and talks about the Father who sent me um, and these sorts of things. But come down to um, his comment here where he's talking about this LQN, this drawing, the dragging to force, he says it almost implies force or violence as when it's used of wrestling, bending the bow, stretching the sail, or when a net is drawn to the land, a ship into the sea, the body of an animal or a prisoner is dragging along, or a culprit is drawn before the tribunal. And there's different references for that, um, including classical dictionaries like Myers. But he says it's certainly much stronger than didosai, which is in verse 37, another reference to draw. Verse 37 says, All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And it implies an active or passive resistance, or obstructions to be removed. Then you come to this drawing in 1232, where... Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. It does, of course, not mean physical or moral compulsion, for faith is, in its very nature, voluntary, and coming to Christ is equivalent to believing in him, but it's clearly expressed through the mighty moral power of the infinite love of the Father, who so orders and overrules the affairs of life so it acts upon our hearts, that we give up our last natural aversion to holiness and willing cheerfully and thankfully embrace the Savior as the gift of our salvation. So now it comes into kind of these precursor ideas, the presumptions of 
whether or not somebody is able to come to Christ and what that means. In Calvinism, you've got this idea of total inability. No, no one, and they use this verse along with others to show that man is totally depraved in the sense that you're not even able uh, to respond to the power of the gospel and hearing the gospel message that Christ died for you uh, and he rose again. Um, and and uh, he says, The natural inability of man to come to Christ, however, is not physical or intellectual, but moral and spiritual. He says, It's an unwillingness. No change of mental organization, no new faculty is required, but a radical change of the heart and will which is affected by the Holy Ghost, but the providential drawing of the Father prepares the way for it. So it seems like Lang is, is making this argument that the Father is drawing, and in this drawing we have a responsibility and ability to respond, and once when we have this response, that is what would change our heart. That response would be belief or uh, continuing in unbelief. Now you've got Whedon, who says, that was probably the longest commentary on that, but let me get back to this. Uh, the People's New Testament says, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. He says, Their obstinacy and unbelief called out this, Two things are needful to come to Christ, the human will to come and the divine drawing. Everybody agrees with that. God draws by the, by the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation, which is a reference to the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If our will consents so that we will yield to the drawing, we will come to Christ. Okay, so um, you've got the People's New Testament and Lang, who seem to be in the same category as what I would be in. This drawing is something that we respond to. Um, and we have an ability to respond to. Uh, when we get into the grammatical and the syntax of this verse, I think that there's a good argument to be made that um, people can respond to this, and those who are given to the Father, um, who are who come to who are given to the Father, have come to Christ as a result of them hearing, listening, and responding through belief. Okay, let's see what uh, let's see what John Wesley says on John six forty four. He says, uh, "Christ, having checked their murmuring, continues what he was saying in John six forty. No man comes to me unless my Father draws him. No man can believe in Christ unless God give him power. He draws us first by good desires, not by compulsion." not by laying the will under any necessity, <clears throat> but the strong and sweet, yet still resistible, motions of his heavenly grace. So John Wesley seems to think that this is not some sort of irresistible drawing, some irresistible grace that's given to the elect, God's chosen people, um, who he decides to give a new heart in order for them to respond. So the Calvinist seems to have this idea that um, you're given a new heart in order to respond. That is, you're regenerated in order to be saved. Um, and obviously they'll take this approach that it's a logical priority and not a chronological um, order of events that's taking place here. 
Um, some say it, it happens at the same time. Um, you're regenerated and believe at the same time. Um, it's kind of hard to understand. It's kind of hard to grasp, like, uh, the logic behind some of these, these things and the way they word it. But um, let's see what John Gill says. John Gill, he says, no one can come to me, that is, by faith, for otherwise they could corporeal come to, uh, come to him, but not spiritually, because they had neither power nor will of themselves, being dead in trespasses and sins and impotent to everything that is spiritual. And whilst men are in a state of unregeneracy, blindness, and darkness, they see no need of coming to Christ, nor anything in him worth coming for. They are prejudiced against him, and their hearts are set on other things. And besides, coming to Christ and believing in Christ being the same thing, it's certain faith is not of a man's self, it's the gift of God and the operation of the Spirit. And therefore, efficacious grace must be exerted to enable a soul to come to Christ, which is expressed in the following words, where, except the Father which sent me, draw him. John Gill goes on and says, which is not to be understood of moral persuasion or of being persuaded and prevailed upon to come to Christ by the consideration of the mighty works which God has done to justify that he was the true Messiah, but of the internal and powerful influence of the grace of God. For this act of drawing is something distinct from and superior to both doctrine and miracles. So doctrine and miracles, the, the words that Jesus are speaking, is speaking, the miracles that he is doing, um, are not effectual to bring somebody to the persuasion that they can believe the message of the gospel. That is, John Gill is saying one must be born again in order to be persuaded, in order to believe these sorts of things. So these miracles, the doctrines of Christ that people were astonished by, uh, are not enough for somebody to intellectually and spiritually grasp what the gospel is saying about themselves as sinners and about the Messiah as their Savior, Jesus. So he says, uh, the uh, Capernites heard the doctrine of Christ, which was taught with authority and had seen his miracles, which were full of proofs of his being the Messiah, and yet believed not, but murmured at his person and parentage. So the idea here that John Gill's conveying is that the miracles and the doctrine weren't enough to persuade them. That means they were totally unable to respond to the gospel prior to regeneration. They had to be regenerated in order to be persuaded by these things. So this gave occasion to Christ being uh, to observe them that something more than these was necessary to their coming to him or saving believing or savingly believing in him. Even the powerful and efficacious grace of the Father in drawing. And if it be considered what men in conversion are drawn off from and to from their beloved lusts and darling righteousness to look unto and rely upon Christ alone for salvation. From that which was before so very agreeable to that which previously to this work was so very disagreeable, to what else can this be ascribed but to unfrustratable and insuperable uh, grace? But though this act of drawing is an act of power, yet not a force, God is drawing of unwilling uh, makes willing in the day of the of his power. He enlightens the understanding, bends the will, gives in heart of flesh, sweetly allures by the power of his 
of his grace and engages the soul to come to Christ and give up itself to him. He draws with the bands of love. <clears throat> Drawing, though it supposes power and influence, yet not always co-action and force. Music draws the ear, love the heart, pleasure the mind. The Jews have a saying that the proselytes in the days of the Messiah shall be all of them proselytes drawn, that is, such as shall freely and voluntarily become proselytes as those who are drawn by the Father are. So, um, there's John Gill. Let's see what Godby has to say. Mm, I want to see if I can find... I think Sutcliffe is what I was looking for. Okay, so the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges says... The 644 draw him is the same word as used in 1232, will draw all men unto me. The word does not necessarily imply force, still less irresistible force, but merely attraction of some kind, some inducement to come. With loving kindness have I drawn thee, Jeremiah 31.3. So there's the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges that shows this is not some sort of irresistible drawing. The, the Calvinist uh, thinks that it is. I want to see. Um, Charles Spurgeon. Where's Spurgeon at? Well, I've got the pulpit commentary here. Let me get down to 644. Way past it there. Okay. Um, so he pretty much does outlines the soul needs to be divinely drawn, and this is because by reason of sin it's estranged from God, as far from God, it's an is at enmity with God. Um he talks about this drawing, the sorts of ways of spiritual attraction, drawing him to himself. I want to get to Spurgeon. Let me see where that is. Why am I not seeing Spurgeon? It might be here. Um, well, maybe Calvin. I know I had Spurgeon in here. But so here's what Calvin says. He says, no, no man can come to me unless the father who has sent me draw him. He doesn't merely accuse them of wickedness, but likewise reminds them that it is a peculiar gift of God to embrace the doctrine which is exhibited by him, which he does that their unbelief may not disturb weak minds. For many are so foolish that in the things of God, they depend on the opinions of men in consequence of which they entertain suspicions about the gospel as soon as they see that it's not received by the world. Unbelievers, on the other hand, flattering themselves and their obstinacy, have the hard, uh, hardihood to condemn the gospel because it does not please them. On the contrary, therefore, Christ declares that the doctrine of the gospel, though it's preached to all without exception, cannot be embraced by all, but that a new understanding and new perception are requisite. And, therefore, that faith does not depend upon the will of men, uh, but that it is God who gives it, <clears throat> unless the Father draws him, okay? He says, to come to Christ being here used metaphorically for believing. The evangelist, in order to carry out the metaphor, 
And the opposite, uh, opposite clause says that those persons are drawn whose understandings God enlightens and whose hearts he bends and forms to the obedience of Christ. The statement amounts to this, that we ought not to wonder if many refuse to embrace the gospel because no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ. But God must first approach him by his spirit, and hence it follows that all are not drawn, but that God bestows this grace on those whom he has elected. True indeed as to the kind of drawing, it's not violent so as to compel men by external force, but still it's powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. It is a false and profane assertion, therefore that none are drawn but those who are willing to be drawn, as if man made himself obedient to God by his own efforts. For the willingness which, with which men follow God is what they are already have from himself who has formed their hearts to obey. Now, um, the idea is pretty clear here from John Calvin that only those um, who are drawn can come, but those who are drawn under the powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, his words, makes men willing who are formerly unwilling and reluctant. So this is, I know some Calvinists don't believe in regeneration prior to faith, but the, the consistent Calvinist, in my opinion, the strong Calvinist position would have to say regeneration takes place prior to faith because one cannot be willing without the work of the Spirit on their heart, changing them from willing to, from unwilling to willing. So the Calvinist um, idea here is that all who are drawn will come to Christ. I want to read this passage again. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up at the, at the last day. We want to know who is raised up at the last day and who can come to Jesus. The question is, <clears throat> uh, the Calvinist says, well, those who are drawn can come to Christ, and all who are drawn will come to Christ, because all who are come to Christ are raised up at, at the last day. Now, here's the problem with that. They're saying those who are raised up on the last day are those who were drawn by the Father and came to the Son. We are saying those who are raised up on the last day were drawn by the Father and came to the Son. The problem is the Calvinist wants to say those who are drawn come. We are saying those who are drawn can come. So the difference in the two clauses that we're, we're making here is the Calvinist wants to say, those who are drawn will come, will be raised up the last day. We are saying those who are drawn are able to come and will be raised up on the last day. So we are not saying you're able to come to Christ of your own will. You're not able to come without the grace of God. You're not able to come without the work of the Holy Spirit. What we're saying is the, the, the gospel itself has the power to bring someone to salvation by hearing it and believing it. That's the power of God unto salvation, the gospel. I think that the perversion of the gospel comes in when we have these other doctrines, these other ideas that come in through Augustine and change the gospel from 
that message, you're able to hear the gospel and believe it and come to Christ, and then you have the promise to be raised up on the last day if you believe. Two, <clears throat> this idea of uh, unconditional election, uh, those who are elect will be drawn, those who are drawn will come, those who will come will be drawn, uh, raised up on the last day. So we've eliminated this clause of ability, which is no man can come to me. That word can is dynamai, dunamai, um, which implies ability. We agree you do not have the ability to come to Christ except you've been drawn by the Father. It's the job of the Calvinist to prove that only the elect are drawn of the Father in order to come to the Son. Because that would make their argument stronger. It would be a stronger case. This verse here is one that, when I look at the Calvinist interpretation of this verse, is really what, really, really, it's probably the strongest verse that keeps me from becoming a Calvinist, because it just doesn't say what they want it to say. It doesn't say what they're saying it says either. So, um, Ken Wilson in his book, uh, The Foundation of Augustinian Calvinism, in chapter 5, he goes through the history of Augustine and his influence um, on the church. Uh, he, he makes a very strong case that the Manichaeanism of divine determinism, unilateral divine determinism from Manichaeanism, was brought into uh, Christianity through Augustine. It didn't exist prior to that in Christianity. It was not a Christian belief. And divine determinism is directly linked to election and irresistible grace, and particularly this verse on who's able to come to Christ. That's a big deal to me. Like some of you think like it's not that big a deal, like we're all just saying the same thing in different words. It's kind of a semantic type of thing, type of an issue. It's really not. If you really look at what people are saying, take a step back. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you're still listening, it's probably a big deal to you because words mean things. They have meaning. The gospel is kind of a big deal to you. Um, you care about what the Bible says. You care about who Jesus loves. You care about who Jesus died for. You care about whether or not this whole thing is just a script and we're playing our role, um, if it's already been written and we're just uh, we're just sort of these these puppets in this play that's already been written, the strings are being pulled by God and we're doing what He tells us to do. Um, whether it's good or evil, those sorts of things are a big deal uh, to people who care. And Ken Wilson he draws into where Augustine transitioned, um, and how he brought those things into Christianity, where it started with him. He says he, Augustine reverted to Manichaean interpretations of Scripture. Augustine used Christian Scriptures to prove his new doctrines, but unfortunately he used Manichaean interpretations, the very interpretations he had previously refuted as heretical after becoming a Christian. He now converts back to his Manichaean truths. <clears throat> the Manichaean deterministic interpretations 
the Gnostic Manichaeans cited John 6.65, 14.6, and Ephesians 2 as proof text for unconditional election against Christian free choice. Fortunatus, the Manichaean, had quoted Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God. Um, as evidence for initial faith being God's gift to grace. Now, the Calvinist takes Ephesians 2.8 and and says that faith is the gift of God. Some people um, take the the stance that it's not faith that's the gift, but it's salvation that's the gift. I think there's a good grammatical argument to show that it is salvation that's the gift. But Augustine previously correctly attacked this error where he says, I say it's not sin if it be not committed by one's own will. Hence also there's a reward because of our own will we do right. I'm going to switch this back so that you guys uh, can see me here. And uh, okay, so he says, Um, Okay, he says, it's not sin if it be committed by one's own will. Hence, also, there's a reward because of our own will we do right. Such pagan ideas were refuted by Augustine until 412 when he readopted the Manichaean interpretations against all prior Christian authors. Psalm 51.5 had never been cited by a Christian author as a proof of separation from God at physical birth, uh, where David says, in sin my mother conceived me. Until Augustine used it to turn traditional original sin, which was sin propensity, moral weakness, and physical death. That was the traditional um, doctrine of original sin. And Augustine turned this into what Ken Wilson calls Augustinian original sin, which is inherited sin and guilt from Adam, producing damnation at birth and total spiritual inability. In 395, he held the traditional view of Romans 5.12. Therefore, a sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sin. This allowed him to omit Romans 5.12 as unimportant in his commentary on Romans. It was unnecessary to comment. In fact, his book on free will claims this. But we also use it in speaking of the nature with which we are born uh, mortal, ignorant and subject to the flesh, which is really the penalty of sin. In this sense, the apostle says, we also were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But if any of Adam's race should be willing to turn to God and so overcome the punishment, which he had been merited by the original turning away from God, it was fitting not only that he should be hindered, but that he should also receive divine aid. In this way, also, the creator showed how easily man might be might have been might have retained, um, if he had so willed, the nature with which he was created, because his offspring had power to transcend that in which he was born. After 4.11, this is back to Ken Wilson, he says, his Manichaean view of inherited birth guilt and his Stoic view of micromanaging providence pervaded his theology with infants being damned at birth by divine unilateral choice. And he goes on, he says, there was a problem. Christianity required personal faith for baptismal regeneration. So Augustine utilized an approach combining Stoic determinism and Christian doctrine. He invented a proxy salvation. 
whereby one person can believe for another. So the infant being baptized need not believe in Christ. Um, he goes on and says, There's not in, in, indeed a man among the faithful who would hesitate to call such infants believers merely from the circumstance that such a designation is derived from the act of believing. For although incapable of such an act themselves, yet others are sponsors for them in sacraments. Personal faith was no longer required. Um, the Augustinian scholar Bonner wrote, it's been remarkable. It's been remarked that the number of texts to which Augustine appealed to establish this doctrine of original sin is remarkably limited to uh, Psalm 50, verse 7, 51, 5, Job 14, 4, John 3, 5, Ephesians 2, 3, and Romans 5, 12. These were enlisted as proof texts after Augustine invented his new doctrine. So he also goes through and traces uh, kind of the, the historical um, side of Augustine's interpretations and traditional Christian interpretations of passages as it regards to faith and um, one's ability to believe the gospel. Uh, it's clear to see that uh, he's drawn in this Stoic and Gnostic uh, deterministic view of election, irresistible grace, these sorts of things to show that, um, that he needed man to be regenerated in order to believe the gospel in the first place. I want to read to you what Adam Harwood writes in his, in his, new, uh, in his new book, Christian Doctrine. Christian theology. And he's got a chapter where he talks about John 6, 44, uh, with a subtitle, God's Chosen People. He says, In the New Testament, the people of God are called the elect. When the Son of Man returns, he will gather his elect. Paul told the Thessalonians, We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. The elect are those who trust in Jesus. They were chosen in him. Some follow Augustine interpreting these texts to mean that God selected those individuals from eternity for salvation. Other texts which do not state those ideas can be interpreted in ways consistent with Augustinian predestination. For example, Jesus remarked that no one could come to him unless drawn by the Father. This statement is interpreted by some to mean that God draws only some people to faith in Christ. Against this inter interpretation, though, Jesus also stated that when he was lifted up on the cross, uh, cross, he would draw all people to himself. When the Ephesians 1 statements of being chosen and predestined are viewed through the Augustinian lens, one might think the text states that God chooses individuals and predestines them for salvation. He says, as already noted, however, predestination is a promise for believers not a statement about an individual's election to salvation. In addition, the verses in Ephesians 1 do not state that people become part of the chosen by God choosing them for salvation. Rather, the text identifies that believers are chosen in him. Election concerns Israel's Messiah and the cross of Christ, where Paul explains in Ephesians 1.13 that people unite with Christ when they hear and believe the message of the gospel. So now I want to take a second and bring you to the grammatical and syntactical argument. I need to share my screen here with you. And we'll look at John 6, 44. 
It says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So again, we want to see who, who's going to be raised up at the last day. Well, it's those who come to Jesus. Who can come to Jesus? Well, you have to be drawn of him. That is the Father. Um, there's an argument that's been made that those who are drawn of the Father hear the voice of the Father. And I want to show you in the grammatical side, the structure of this verse, whether or not we have an argument to say ability is given to a person to either come to or reject the gospel um, when they are drawn. The argument we're making is the Father has to draw you. The Father draws all men and you have the ability to either come to Christ or to continue to reject Christ. Um, upon that drawing. So here you've got the grammatical structure. This discourse is continued. Um, the subject is going to be Jesus and whether or not uh, someone's able to come to Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking. He's speaking about himself and he's giving this, um, he's given direction to, whoops, he's given direction to his audience on who's able to come to him through the hearing of his words. So, in the syntax, you've got uh, you've got the uh, we've we've got the overall structure, which is going to be a compound set of spoken words to complete itself. There's two sections here. The com the the compound is going to it's it's broken up into these two sections. The first section is going to be the subject, the doer. It's going to be the experiencer of the predicate. Um, the subject of the predicate is going to be um, uh, the udes. It's going to be, here's your predicate. The predicate is going to be those who come. The predicate is determining who comes. Okay, so uh, the dunatai is telling you who is able to come. So you can see that it should be highlighted. Who's able to come? You can see that over here as well. Uh, who is able to come is going to be limited to this clause here. The, the clause here shows that those who are able to come is limited to some sort of work from this pater. The pater is going to be the father. The pemphos is going to be the sending um, He's, he's the same person who sent the Son from heaven. This is the discourse that Jesus is explaining to his audience. He was sent from heaven by the Father. This same Father who sent him from heaven is the one that's going to draw. This drawing that you can see over here is a singular present middle, middle indicative, which shows an ability is given based off the work of the Father. And now this this subjective clause is limited to the work of the Father, which gives this clause here, this doer, this is the agent. This is the person that we're trying to figure out, the udes. Who is able to come? Udes. The man is not able to come unless the work of the Father draws him. Okay, so now that we see the man is the subject, he's the doer, he's, he's the experiencer. This person is the experiencer of the work of the Father, drawing him, which gives him 
the ability now grammatically in the syntax, this experiencer of the work of the Father now has the ability to either come to Christ or not to come to Christ. In this structure, you have another subject, the doer, the experiencer, is going to be who is raised up at the last day. That person who's raised up at the last day uh, is, the, is the person who comes to Christ. So I want to show you in this diagram, you should be able to see here, the man, Udace, uh is given the ability to come by the Father. You can see that down here. I can't highlight it, but um, you can see that in this diagram where the Father is giving him the ability to come, this man now... Chicago has been given the ability and will be raised up on a staso, um, raised up. He will be raised up, that same person, the same man, this Alton is that Udace. Him is the man. This man is the one who comes to Christ as the work of the drawing of the Father and his response to either believe the words of Christ or not. And that's in the end, the last day, the eschate. <clears throat> now, in the in the eschaton, what we're looking for is the person who is raised up at the last day. You can see um, that person who is raised up at the last day is the person who's given to the Son, um, who is the same person that was sent by the Father. I, I think that I've kind of made my point here, but um, the whole point is grammatically, the conditional clause is showing that you need to be drawn in order to come to the Son. When you've been drawn, you've been given the ability to come. Just because you have the ability to come does not mean that you will come. The Calvinist says you will come if you have the ability to come. The text doesn't say that. The text is supporting the argument that those who do come will be raised up on the last day. That's what we want to know. That's what we're trying to get the Calvinists to show is the limitations of this drawing. They're showing this drawing is an effectual drawing and those who are drawn come. Everyone who's drawn comes to Christ and will be raised up on the last day. What we're saying is if that's your claim, it's not supported in the grammar, it's not supported in the syntax, show us, show us the limitation of the drawing. Show us that it's only for the elect, because the grammar and the syntax doesn't support that. It just shows that if you're drawn, you can come. It's that simple. Um, I think that is kind of uh, where I might leave it off here, but I hopefully this has been a benefit to you. I looked at some of the Calvinist commentaries. I looked at some of the non-Calvinist commentaries. Um, Ken Wilson gives a pretty good argument showing where the, these deterministic ideas were brought in, and a lot of it has to do with how somebody interprets Ephesians 1. Um, John 6 is in, in the drawing is based off of whether or not you think unconditional election is true. The way that I see it, I think that... Um, the real gospel in Calvinism is election. I've said it many times. Do I believe Calvinists are saved? Sure I do. 
I don't think they're saved by the, the gospel that Calvinism preaches. I think that they were probably saved before they heard the gospel of Calvinism. It's, it, there's just so much to unpack here. Um, but I think this is a good start. We've been going for 49 minutes. Hopefully we'll be able to follow up and do some other passages, but this is John 6, 44, the grammatical argument, the syntax argument. Um, and these things just naturally transition into other places in how you interpret scripture, like Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 10, and those sorts of things. If you have any comments or anything, I'm going to look at the comments real quick. There's there's not a lot, uh, but... But um, if you have anything, you can always feel free to email me, talkingchristianityapologetics at gmail.com. And uh, this is just kind of spur of the moment. I might do more of these and uh, just kind of do stuff like this in between interviews. So I hope that was a blessing. I appreciate you guys. I hope you share this, like it, subscribe if you haven't, and help us get the word out. Uh, thank you. Bless.